Welcome to the River City Church podcast and a message by our lead pastor, Jason Powers. Our prayer is that this message would inspire and encourage you, build your faith, and point you to the life-changing love of Jesus. May you enjoy the goodness of God as you follow him today. Our confession, say every week, we are badly broken. It's a confession of hope, isn't it? Badly broken, deeply loved, acknowledges the fact that we lack, that we have weakness, we have failure, we have insufficiencies. And if we drilled it down, if we were talking person to person and face to face, we could talk about specifics of some of those things. What does some of the brokenness look like? And some of it is like, like character flaws. Right? Some of us could sit down and just say, I have this addiction. I have this history of behavior. I have this failure. When I was young, I did this. And when I was older, I did this. And I've seen this play out of it. Some of it is just, it's not so much failures, it's just weakness. I'm facing a thing that I can't get out of. We know that we're broken, but our confession is this hope that our weakness, that our failures as specific and comprehensive as they may be, aren't ultimate. They're not the final thing. They don't have the final say. Our confession is the hope that our brokenness doesn't disqualify us. The brokenness that we have seen, that we have been a part of, that we have caused, or that we have been unwilling participants in. Our hope is that in the end, love wins. Our hope is that in the end, it works out. Hope, the confident expectation that a certain thing is going to happen. Hope is trust. It's this acknowledgement and this recognition that we need something bigger, that we need something larger. We need a force from outside, whether it be a Jedi or it be intervention, somehow it's the realization that on our own, where we stand as we are, we don't have it all together, and we hope for it, and we want it. There are implications. It implies waiting, doesn't it? When we say we hope for something, it means that we haven't had it yet. It means that it's not here yet. We're hoping for a job. means we don't yet have the hope, but we have reason to believe that this job, the person who has all the power, the power to do the hiring and firing, our hope is that they will come through and we will get that. It implies that there are limitations to the self. It it implies that I am not sovereign because until I realize and recognize that I'm not sovereign, I'll just keep trying, right? And this is where all of our control freak tendencies come in, right? We spin ourselves out and we wear ourselves out trying to do one more thing, trying to pull one more string, one more lever, trying to get one more place. And we realize what we're hoping in is ourselves, right? And there's this sense when we come to wait where we just go, I've done what I can do. Now I have hope left. We see it at Christmas, kids hope for Santa. Now, an interesting thing, kids don't have to hope a lot because kids, young people, they think they're bulletproof, right? Like they don't yet realize that they're not omnipotent and can't do all things. But one thing that they know that they're limited is they don't have the toy, the thing, right? So what do they do? They hope that Santa will come. I hope year after year that the Cowboys will hire a real coach and we can finally have a decent (laughs) season, right? Hope as yet unrealized, but hope springs eternal, right? Hope is that I don't have the power to hire a coach or to fire a coach. I don't even have access, so I just, I just hope that someone's going to make it happen. We hope for a diagnosis, and we come to realize that that is out of our control. 
you see people with chronic illnesses struggling to have hope, right? Because after a while, after long-term hope not realized, and the proverb says uh, 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 hope deferred makes the heart sick, it's hard to cling to hope when we believe that maybe the things won't happen like we like. We hope for the diagnosis. We hope that something will happen, that someone will come through. We have hope in these situations where interpersonal relationships, where these, we, we have quarrels or fights or struggles or, or we go to work and bad things don't happen. We have hard times and we hope because in difficult times we come to realize so much of our life is just out of our control, isn't it? When you're in a marriage, when you have a relationship with a child that's gone sour, it's going south or you're struggling, you realize hope is what we have because you come to terms with realize I can't make this person do anything. And so we hope, God, can you get through? The judge, can the judge get through? Can the doctor get through? And so we hope when we feel powerless and out of control, we're left to hope. But hope is powerful. Hope is a powerful thing. It keeps us going. It keeps us getting up. We see in Isaiah chapter 40, Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and he wrote, and he wrote as it as a Jewish person as an Israelite kind of wrote about Babylon and then kind of restoration, but he talks about this season of waiting. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 29, he writes about God. He, God, gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So this is always the context for hope. Weariness, weakness, when we're running out of strength, when we don't have all that we need. He says, when that happens, he, God, gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope, some translations translate that as wait, right? The word, the Hebrew word for hope and for waiting are often the same translated either way. Those who hope on the Lord, those who wait in the Lord, what will happen? They will renew their strength. Those without strength will get strength. God will get it. God will put it. It's not something that they manufacture. It's not something that they gin up. It's not like, well, I took a good nap and now I'm all ready to go. No. Hope is something that God answers with strength. And now the results, right? They will soar on wings like eagles. Those who didn't have strength before, now they're soaring. Now they're running and not growing weary. Now they will walk and they'll not faint. See, hope, this idea of hope realized always presses us to move, hopes us, moves us towards action. We don't hope and then have hope and go, oh, great, everything's good. When you read in the Old Testament, when you read Jewish literature, you read, you read the prophets, you read in Kings and Chronicles and the histories. When you read about Jewish hope, Jewish hope was always for Messiah. That's what the Jewish people were looking for. The word Messiah, it's a Hebrew word. It's in Greek, the word Messiah, the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. It literally means anointed one. It means a king. It means the one who has been set apart, who has been chosen, who has been set apart. The Hebrew, the Jewish hope was for Messiah. The Messiah would be the king who would lead them, lead them out of captivity, lead them out of battle. When Isaiah was writing, he was talking about the Jewish people would go into exile in Babylon, and so they hoped for the Messiah, the king that would come and conquer Babylon and lead them back out into their own nation, lead them back into prosperity. The Messiah would set things right. And what we know, what we see is that Jesus fulfilled this Messiah. When we look in Matthew chapter 21, and the gospel of Matthew is, or Matthew chapter 12 rather, Matthew is kind of the, the gospel writer with the most Jewish perspective. So the 
gospel writer Matthew. He's writing about Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. Aware of this, he's, there's kind of some backstories. Jesus withdrew from that place and a large crowd followed him. So now we see Jesus and he's on his ministry, right? He's teaching, he's doing all things. He withdraws to a large place, to a place and a crowd follows him. So he's got a gathering, right? People are walking to see what he does and he heals all who are ill. So this is one of the rare times actually in the gospels where we find Jesus healing everybody who was there. But he came and he sat and he healed. Now imagine that yourself in that place. If you're coming to Jesus for healing, what that means is that you're sick. What that means is that if, when you're sick, you typically go to doctors. And so if they're coming to Jesus, they've probably tried everything that they know to do, and they had now run out of options. Help me, Jesus. You're my only hope. So they come, and when it says is he healed them. He touched them, and they were healed. Now, and he warned them to go and not tell others. Now Matthew gives us a little commentary this, this healing that Jesus did, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Remember we said Isaiah, talking about hope, always talking about Messiah. So what Matthew is saying right here is Jesus, as he's doing this thing, as he's teaching and as he's healing and he's on his ministry, this is a messianic prophecy. He's doing what Messiah does and he explains this. Here's what it is. Here's my servant. See, the Jewish people thought the king was gonna have like swords and armies and tanks, you know, and bombers and all that. Instead, it says he comes as a servant. Here's my servant who, has, who I've chosen the one who I love and who I'm delight. says, I put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Now notice what he's gonna do. He'll not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice on the street. He's saying he's not gonna be this big kind of charismatic public speaker, right? He's not gonna have a megaphone. He's not gonna be on a speaking tour, right? Here's what's interesting. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he won't snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. So the idea is a brute, is reeds, right? You see reeds, and they're just like big, tall pieces of grass, right? And they've got like the little corn dog thing looking on top of it, right? And so you've seen that, right? When they get tall, they're kind of, because they're tall and thin, they're kind of flimsy, right? Well, if something happens, if you bump into one and you, and you hit one or strike one on the side, it'll start to bruise. It's going to have like a little dark spot. And what happens then is it gets weak. And at that point, you can kind of just break it off. Well, the picture that the prophet spoke about, about Messiah that we see in Jesus was he was going to be a servant, he was going to be a giver. He was going to give himself for the other people. And the picture is, you've got this bruised, delicate, tender reed that Jesus isn't breaking. He's not coming through like a bull in a china shop, knocking stuff over, destroying stuff. He says he sees what is tender and what needs support and help, and he doesn't break off. He lifts it up. He, he helps it. A, you've got a, a, a wick, right? You've got a lamp, and it's just smoldering. It's just about to go out, and Jesus doesn't kind of carelessly or bull and shut doesn't snuff it out. He keeps it going. The picture of Messiah, that Messiah was going to come as a servant, and this is what we see Jesus doing, right? Healing, leading, loving, being tender and gentle with those who need to be tender and gentle. The Jewish people knew that Messiah was coming. Matthew told us that Jesus was the Messiah that was coming. Most of the Jewish people at that time didn't get it. They didn't get that Jesus was the one who was looking for. A few of them did. The 12, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, and Bartholomew were told that, you know, we find in Acts chapter 1, right after Jesus came, there were about 120 people in the upper room. So out of all of Israel, Jesus comes and he does all this. There, we find there are thousands of people. He fed them. About 100 people got it. Later on, a few more would get. One of the ones who got it finally was Paul. 
the Apostle Paul. His name was Saul first. He was a Pharisee. He was, uh, he was good at being a Pharisee. He was good at the law. And Saul went out and he was on this campaign to kill and murder and totally stomp out this way of Jesus because he thought Jesus' way was dangerous to Judaism, right? And so he's on the road to Damascus and he has this encounter with Jesus and Jesus goes, Saul, what are you doing? Changes his name. Saul becomes this great apostle. Writes most of the New Testament plants churches all over, all over kind of the Western world at the time. Paul got it. He saw in Jesus, he knew Jesus, what Jesus was about. He said, no, that's the Messiah. Paul understood the hope of Israel because Paul was a, was a Hebrew and Paul was a Jew and Paul was a Pharisee. He understood the hope of Israel. He knew what Messiah meant. And he looked at Jesus and said, Jesus is that, that's Messiah. That's what we need. So he knew about it. how did he describe the hope that Jesus fulfilled in Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. In him, talking about Jesus, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The hope of Messiah is redemption. It was always redemption. When the Jewish people were in exile, they wanted to be redeemed. To be redeemed, it's a, it's a legal term. It means, it, and, and it's like, like a marketplace term, right? To redeem, if you have a coupon and you turn it in, you get something back. It's to set something free through the paying of a ransom. So there's something, a people in bondage. You see it, right, in, in the slave trade, right? That, that's the Jewish context. They were slaves in Egypt. And God says, I redeemed you with my mighty right hand. He led the people of Israel out of Egypt. When they were in Babylon, they were redeemed. They were bought with a price. And so what Paul tells us is the hope of Messiah has been redemption. What we have in Jesus is redemption. redemption. And he explains it as the forgiveness of sins. And he explains the path of our redemption, what, right? Because redemption is about a ransom. So how does the ransom paid? In his blood, it says. It's not tangible. See, we think of, we can let Jesus kind of get into this world of really kind of super spiritual, touchy-feely kind of ethereal things, right? But Paul didn't say we're redeemed by Jesus' love. Love is great. It's nice. I like to be loved, right? But it's kind of fuzzy. He didn't say we were redeemed by Jesus's power, did he? He said we were redeemed by Jesus's blood. Blood is a tangible thing. At the time that Paul wrote that, the Christians would have known. It's about the cross. They would have known about the crucifixion of Jesus. That, a very concrete, a very tangible expression. That is what brings our redemption. That is the substance of our hope. That is what we are looking for. The idea is that gets us out of a situation that we can't get ourselves out of. When we realize that we can't behave our way out of a situation that we have behaved our way into it, redemption is our only hope. Our only hope is that someone more powerful than us, more good than us, will come in and redeem us and will save us. Some people have in their brains like a compass, right? You just know, right? You've, you've known these people. You go, and some of you are these people, I, I, whatever. I, I don't get it. I'm not that person, right? You just walk up and it's like, hey, can you tell me how to get to Chick-fil-A, right? And I'm like, well, you want to go east on here? You want to head north? I'm like, don't talk to me about north. North is up, right? When I look at that, that's north, right? Because that's, that's what I do. 
I used to work with a guy named Willie Mayfield, and Willie was compass in his head guy. Willie, always, you could spin Willie around, throw him out of an airplane in the heart of darkness, and he's gonna know where to go, right? He's gonna start trekking his way out. I'm not that guy. But it took me a while to come to that realization. Several years ago, probably 12 years ago, whatever, uh, we were taking, uh, our church staff was going on a, um, to a conference in Portland, Oregon. And Natalie and I went up a couple days early, right? We were gonna take a little vacation. It was great. It was a wonderful time. Well, for a couple days, I'm kind of learning my way around Portland, right? I get there. So now we go pick everybody up at the airport. We show up in the van, right? Because I knew how to get to the, to the airport. So I, we pick them up and we get in the van and everybody's like, well, let's go out to dinner. And I'm like, well, I've been here. I will guide us. I will be our leader on this. And so what do I do? I'm like, I got the van, guys. I'm good. So I get in the, you know, I get in the van. I'm driving. Everybody's like, Willie's kind of in the back, right? Because I'm just like, Willie, I got this, right? And so I'm driving. As soon as I'm out of the parking lot, I'm like, oh, God, I'm lost. I'm going, right? But I don't say anything, right? Because I got this. I'm a grown man. I can find my way around, right? Uh, and Natalie's kind of sitting there. Uh, and Willie in the back, after about two minutes, he's like, you don't know where you're going, do you? <laughs> Willie. Please, I got this. And Natalie's next to me, and I'm like, Natalie, I don't know where I'm going. Help me get it. Because she's a little bit of the compass in the head thing, right? And so we go, and about five minutes later, Willie goes, you don't know where you're going, do you? And at this time, I'm like beaten down in shame. And I'm just, why can't I just do this, right? So I had to pull over and get out and kind of slump to the back. <laughs> Willie comes in and saves the day, and we all dinner. This is a picture of redemption. Until I could have just driven around Portland, all night long, right? And we would have died of starvation in the van as we do all that, right? But it came to a point where I just said, I have got us lost in city center, Portland, Oregon. I don't know what that is about. And Willie, with his compass brain, swoops in and saves the day. This is a picture of redemption. I couldn't get myself out of what I had gotten myself into. When we encounter that reality, when we encounter the reality that we are broken, not as kind of just a philosophical premise, but that the things that I do hurt people, the things that I do hurt me, they hurt my family, they hurt my kids, or even it's not just like this willful destruction and deliberate, anything like that. It's sometimes just like I'm in a situation that I don't know what to do. I didn't mean to do anything. I just got sick, and now I'm stuck Someone I love just got sick, and now I'm stuck. When we encounter the reality of our weaknesses and our failures, our hope is that those failures and weaknesses can be redeemed, that something else can come along and lift us up, can save the day, can prove to be strong on our behalf. If we resist that, and, and, and here's the reality, right? Like, like, this is the thing. Not everybody is ready to admit that they're weak yet. And, if that, and that's, like, you just got to know. Like, if that's you, you're just like, nah, I think I'll kill. That's fine. Keep coming, right? But until we acknowledge and recognize that, man, there are things that I can't do. There are things that I can't handle. There are behaviors that I can't overcome. We'll keep resisting, and we'll keep struggling, and we'll keep fighting. And we'll keep hurting people along the way. And then we're forced, like, oh, what do I need to do? Do I got to defend myself? Or I got to justify? Or I got to change the rules? Or I got I to do all these things? Because I keep saying things that hurt people, right? And we start saying, well, I'll just manage that, right? We get into these addictions. And, and we just say, I will never drink again. Or I will never go put another dollar on the credit card again. Or I will never, whatever it is, I, I'll never do that. And what do we do? We wake up in the morning and we, well, we muster up like this thing, willpower, right? Well, I'm going to willpower. Listen. 
Willpower doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. We behave our way into these addictions because we're trying, because we can't cope with and manage life. What we don't need is more willpower. What we need is someone else or something else to help us move through this towards redemption. Redemption is what we need. And so we have hope. Hope is this ethereal kind of thing, right? And you know when you've lost it, you know what hopelessness feels like. But still, how do you explain it? We have hope, which is this ethereal thing that things are going to be okay, things are going to work out, that something big is going to come through. And it's based on this other kind of ethereal thing like redemption. And you go, I don't feel like a slave. I don't feel like I'm own. And so we have these two ideas. And so, so is, is that what hope is? Is hope just like a feeling, just a thing that we kind of have to stop and step back and, and, and check on and see if it, it, you know, what I would say is absolutely not. Hope is not ethereal. Hope is not touchy-feely and kind of gauzy and fuzzy. Redemption is not an idea that we can batter around and wonder, is that what it looks like? Hope and redemption and Messiah are real things, as tangible as the day is long. So what does it look like? In Luke chapter 22, we're coming to the end of Jesus' life. It's actually Luke's account of the Last Supper. And we find accounts of the Last Supper um, kind of posed different ways in each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So in Luke... Luke's telling the story of the Last Supper. And so they've had dinner, and Jesus, they've had the Last Supper and all this, and it's the end of dinner, and Jesus begins to talk to Simon Peter, right? And listen, Simon Peter is a guy that I really identify with, right? Because he's loud and brash and often just starts talking and things come out, and you get a sense that Peter often was like, why did I say that? Sure wish I hadn't, right? I identify with that. I get you, Peter, right? So Jesus is at dinner, and Jesus, you got a picture in a kind of loving and caring way, looks at Peter and says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. Now, you get a picture. You know what sift looks, right? Like you put it in a sieve, and you just shake it and shake it until all the stuff falls off. And so Jesus looks at Peter and says, listen, Satan has asked to sift you. He says, but I prayed for you, Simon. Now, what did he pray? Did he say, Simon, I pray that you won't get sifted? Did he say, I pray that nothing bad would ever happen to you? I prayed, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, you notice the phrasing, when you have turned back, Peter, you're going to get sifted and you're going to fall and you're going to stumble and you're going to be down. But then when you get up, what is it? His prayer is that you will strengthen your brothers, that you won't quit. Simon, my hope, my prayer for you is that when you fall, that you're going to get back up. And notice what Peter, this is, this is textbook Peter, but he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. You're like, a boy, Peter, that's good. Jesus, the one who you have called Lord and Messiah, the one who has come down from God, he just told you hard times were gonna come and his prayer for you is that you would be able to get back up. And what does Peter do? Nonsense, Lord. I shall follow you anywhere, anywhere that you will go. Jesus answered, listen to Jesus' answer. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Peter, you think you're going to the grave? You think you're going to die for me? Peter, you're going to tell people I don't even know that guy. So here we have this setup. We have Peter, strong, brash fisherman Peter. Peter, the guy with calluses on his hand. Peter, the guy who would wrestle a bear for Jesus, right? And he's sworn his undying allegiance. And so 
They go through this and they walk out of the room and they're walking up kind of to, to the Mount of Olives, right? And they go through this and Jesus says, goes on in verse, down to verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. So they come with him. And what happens is Jesus kind of breaks off. And in verse uh, 45 says, or, or before that, so Jesus breaks off. And what Matthew's gospel tells us that, that Jesus took Peter and James and John. And he took them. So he left the rest of them there. And he says, Peter and James and John, he says, will you come with me? He says, I need to go pray. Will you just like watch for me? Like, will you kind of just stand guard for me? Just keep a lookout. See what's going on. Jesus goes over and prayed. Verse 45, when he rose from prayer and he went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Just a minute ago, Peter was ready to go to the grave. Peter was ready to die for him. Now, Peter's like, well, nappy time. <laughs> well, I, Jesus, I need, I, I need to take my nap. You begin to see Peter's weakness. You begin to see the failures. Jesus says, wait up with me. So Jesus goes back. They fall asleep again. And while they're sleeping, Judas, who has betrayed Jesus, leads a detachment of Roman soldiers up to arrest Jesus. And so they show up. Peter's asleep. Peter, you get the sense he's, Jesus wakes him up because the soldier's coming. So Peter's shaking the sleep out of his eyes and Judas kisses him on the cheek and the Roman soldiers grab him and they begin to arrest him. And in verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was gonna happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, John tells us it was Peter, one of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Typical Peter, right? Peter's like, I will save you, Jesus. So he's been asleep, but now he's gonna, he's gonna, fix it, right? So he pulls out his sword and he cuts off the servant's ear. Now look, we got to acknowledge Peter loves Jesus. Peter cares very much about Jesus. If he didn't, he wouldn't offer to die for him. Peter's doing what he knows how to do. Peter's in a sense, in a situation, and he doesn't have kind of the awareness that this is big, Peter. So he just starts responding, right? And when time gets tough, we, what do we do? When we get in a deep hole, what do we do? We start digging our way out of it. The funny thing about that saying is you can't dig your way out of a hole, right? Because the more you dig, the further you get. So what does Peter do? He pulls out a sword and he cuts it off. And what does Jesus go? Oh boy, Peter. Thanks, Pete. Hey, Pete, you're awesome. What does Jesus say? No more of this. Peter, stop, stop. You missed it with the nap. You missed it with your declaration. Peter, you're on the wrong face. Peter's coming unraveled right before our very eyes. He doesn't know what to do. He thought he was so strong. It was easy. As long as it's about Peter, as long as it's about Peter getting to, to die from things, everything's great, Lord. Okay, great. I'll die for you. It's as long as it's about Peter's strength, he's ready to swear allegiance. But when we actually see what his strength is, it begins to come unraveled. And so they take Jesus away. They arrest him. They walk him down. And in verse 54, seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down with them. So there's a crowd gathering, kind of nameless faces, gathering around, warming themselves to see what happens. And a servant girl, a little girl, Peter, right? You remember Peter, right? With a sword cutting off the servant's ear and right, declaring his undying love. A little girl saw him seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, 
you're also one of them. You're one of the disciples of that guy because meanwhile, Jesus is being tried over there, right? In this kind of kangaroo court, they're pulling out his beard. They're just, they're, they can't make any charges stick, but they're going to make it stick. And so as the night goes on, it's worse and worse for Jesus. And Peter's kind of in earshot of this. They can have him. Someone says, you're one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another one asserted, certainly this fellow was with him. For he's a Galilean. Peter had an accent. He's a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Peter's ticked. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And notice, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter's failure is absolute. And this wasn't a failure of intent. Peter didn't set out to do the wrong thing. Peter just wasn't who he thought he was. What do we do in those moments? What do you think Peter's hope is in that moment? It's becoming clear by the trial that Jesus is gonna go to his death. They're about to kill Jesus. Jesus is the one that Peter believed in. Jesus is the one that Peter had hoped. And Peter, now you gotta imagine, right? Peter doesn't know, we know the end of the story, right? So it's easy to jump in and go all that, but Peter doesn't know that. Imagine as they're marching Jesus up to the cross. They're whipping him, they're beating him, and he's tried. What if, and Peter begins to think, what if I just stayed awake in the garden? I could have ushered Jesus out of there. I could have got him out. What if I'd stood up in the courtyard? What if I defended Jesus? What if I'd come to Jesus' defense and said, this man is, hasn't done the things. Could I have gotten Jesus off? But you didn't, Peter. You didn't. You didn't do those things. You swore that you would die for him and you just abandoned him. And those are the voices that whisper in our head and the shame and the guilt and the fear and all that, right? What do you think Peter's hoping for in that minute? We don't like to get ourselves into that place. We don't like to be there where our failure is front and center. In fact, we do everything we can to avoid it. But Isaiah the prophet, Paul the apostle, Jesus, and I believe Peter today would indicate that that is the only place where hope can begin. Because until you come to that point, your hope is all Peter's about to discover. And again, I ask the question, what do you think Peter is hoping for? So that terrible night ends, Jesus is crucified, and then two days later, Jesus raises from the dead. Peter sees that, and he's probably excited and happy but he's still got that failure to contend with. So what does he do? We find in John chapter 21, verse two, Simon Peter, Thomas, also called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. One of them is John because he's, because he's writing this. So these are some disciples, right? Some of Jesus' disciples, but head up, spearheaded by Peter. Uh, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. Now, if I say I'm going out to fish, what that means is Jason's about to go waste several hours throwing string in water, right? Not the same thing for Peter. Peter was a fisherman before. Before Peter was a disciple, Peter was a fisherman. And Jesus met him on a boat and said, I'll make you a fisher of men. You think you're a fisherman, Peter? I'll change your identity. I'll make you a disciple. Whatever, Jesus, whatever Peter was hoping for, what we can assume by this, Peter wasn't hoping that his status as disciple was still intact. Peter's failure was too great. Peter's character deficiencies were too great. Peter's denied Jesus. You can't be a disciple if you fail like that. You promised the moon you can't do that. I'm going fishing. 
Simon Peter said. Well, we'll go with you, his friends say. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. How discouraging for Peter. Peter can't be a disciple. Now he can't even be a fisherman anymore. Verse four, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He calls out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And you gotta just know, I like to believe Jesus has a little bit of sarcasm, right? Jesus knows. He's like the timeless, omnipotent one. Hey guys, how's it looking? And you can imagine Peter on the boat. Yeah, how's it looking? I'm about to look like a sock in the mouth for you, right? Their answer, no, <laughs> right? That's, that's all they get. So Jesus says, well, throw your nets out on the other side. And you can imagine how great that is, right? You, when you're fishing and you're in the boat, you love when everybody's going, ah, just throw it over there, right? For some reason they do. They throw their nets out over the other side, and what happens is their nets get so full that literally they can't bring them in. It takes all of them to bring the nets in. The boats begin to sink. And if you go back to Luke chapter 5, the first time Jesus met him, this is what happened. And so what happens is they're pulling in this load of fish, and Peter turns around. It's Jesus. And what he does is he puts his clothes on and jumps in the water and he swims up. And when they get there, and all the disciples, they bring the boats in. And when they get there, they find that Jesus has made them breakfast. And they're just sitting there. And imagine Peter now. Imagine Peter, he's done this. He's betrayed Jesus. And he steps up on the shore and there's gotta be that moment, like what's coming? Is Jesus mad at me for getting him crucified? But Jesus starts to say, hey, sit down, Peter. Have, a, have some fish, right? We're having a little trout. We're having some, you know, trout quiche for breakfast or whatever. Have, just have, have a seat, Peter. And so they sit down and they talk. And this whole meal, all of them get together, and it's like old times again. And at first, Peter wonders, is Jesus going to go, what are you doing, Peter? How could you do that to me? You said you would do it, and you failed, whatever. And afterwards, he, as the meal goes on and Jesus doesn't bring it up, maybe Peter started, maybe he just forgot about it, however that happens. Hey, sorry, I got you crucified, right? No, maybe he's just not, maybe he's not, maybe it'll sweep on the rug, and that's his hope, right? Maybe we just won't have to talk about it because I don't want to talk about my failure, and I don't want to talk about my pain, and I don't want to think about it again. And Jesus, I just want things to go back the way that they used to be. I just want things to be like they were. And in verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus says to Simon Peter, now put yourself on the shore, put yourself on the beach, looks at Simon Peter and says, Simon, do you love me more than these? I don't know what these is, because it doesn't say, like, is he looking at the fish? Simon, do you really want to go back to catch and perch? Simon, you walked on water. Simon, you saw me raise the dead. You saw me heal sick people. Simon, do you want to go back to catching fish? Is that, is that what you want? Maybe he's talking about the disciples. Peter, do you, do you love me more than you love these guys? Or do you love me more than these guys? Let me, I don't know what it is. Peter would have got it because he was standing there in body language and all that. But Jesus now, what is Jesus' question? Love. See, Peter thought Jesus wanted him to die for him, right? Like, oh, will you, will you die for me, Peter? Whatever. Like, and so what, what Jesus is doing is he's giving Peter something that he can say yes to. The Greek word here is agape, and it's like this big God love. Peter, do you love me like God loves his creation? And Peter responds with another word for love, phileo. It's like brotherly love. He says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter's like, man, I love you like a brother, Jesus. What does Jesus say? It's not good enough? So that's the kind of love that gets you abandoning me? No, he tells him, feed my lambs. Jesus, you know that I love you. He says, feed my lambs. See, redemption always leads to action. He didn't say, yeah, I, I forgive you, you're, you're great, now just sit there and be forgiven. He says, no, then get to it. And, and throughout the New Testament, the gospel writers, Jesus talked about himself, the good shepherd, right? When he says, feed my lambs, he's talking about as a shepherd. These are the things that I care the most about, Peter, more than I care about anything else. He says, if you love me, then care about the things that I care about. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you love me like God 
loves perfectly? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I love you like a brother. Peter's learned his lesson. He's not over-promising now, is he? He's like, look, Jesus, this is what I got. I can't promise to love like that. You know my failures. You know my weakness. And Jesus says, and take care of my sheep. The third time, listen, the third time Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Yes, Lord. He's hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, right? He's like, now Peter gets it. You're talking about it, Jesus. You're putting your finger on the thing. I know I failed you. I know I get it. I don't measure up. I'm not good. And Jesus, now, I can't love like you need me to love. I can't do the things, Lord. I'm weak. I'm failure. I've sinned. I'm an addict. I'm broken. All these things, right? And Jesus, now, stops with the agape. Yes, yes, yes. Do you agape me? I can't, Jesus. I'm badly broken, Jesus. Then Peter, can you phileo me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo, I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times Jesus gives Peter an opportunity to declare his love and finds that sufficient. And he doesn't even say, Peter, you can't measure up to that. Jesus meets Peter where he's at and gives him a job. Not a menial job for the failures. He makes Peter in charge of his most precious thing. That's what forgiveness looks like. That's what redemption looks like. He's not Peter the failure. He's not Peter the denier. He's Peter the restored. He is Peter the redeemed. He is Peter, the keeper of the master's sheep. Whatever Peter was hoping for, that wasn't it. But it is what we can hope for because we've seen that this is what Jesus' heart does. Jesus doesn't seek us out to destroy us. Jesus gives us hope that our failures, that our weaknesses, that they're not final. Jesus allows us to know that we are seen, that we are known, that we are called. We're not loved in spite of our brokenness. It's not like Jesus goes, yeah, well, I won't worry about your brokenness and our failures. No, the picture we have in John 21 is Jesus looking right at Peter's failures and going, I don't love you in spite of those. I love you in the midst of those, Peter, because you can't be any different. Jesus was never surprised that Peter denied him. He called it, right? Peter was surprised. Peter needed to realize that he was broken and failing. Listen, if your marriage is falling apart, you have a part in it. I'm not saying it's all your response, your responsibility, but what is your hope? You can't change the way your spouse responds. Listen, if you're in financial distress, there's a behavior associated with that. You can't change the cost of goods. You can't change that, but you can, and you may not even be able to behave your way out of it. So what's your hope? For another dollar, listen, if you get more dollar with bad behavior, you're going to spend that too. If you get another chance with bad behavior, you're going to blow that too. Our hope is that love is bigger. Our hope is that redemption is possible. Hope is the Christmas way. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about the one who can forgive us coming. Not staying far away and saying, you get to me, but coming. And being like a child. Being like a baby. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is that God is willing to become like an infant to reach us. We are too often like Peter. 
self-confident, full of swagger, aware of all of our own resources. And when we find ourselves in a situation that we can't get out of, we lie, or we fake it, or we try to change the rules, or we double down on the problem. See, the Jews hoped for political Messiah. And when Jesus proved to not be that, they killed him. They didn't want that. They didn't want that kind of Messiah. What are you hoping in? Are you hoping that you're finally going to be strong enough to overcome something that you have never been strong enough in your life? Are you hoping that this time you're going to have the right words, that this time you're going to wake up and not take a drink, that this time you're going to wake up and not spend the dollar? Folks, that's a fool's errand. Peter hoped to overpower. But listen, if your hope in your life is that you're someday going to be, over, be able to overcome all of your enemies, then you live constantly ready for a fight. And friend, that's just tiring, isn't it? Don't live your life fatigued. Don't let, live your life exhausted and worn out, hoping that you can finally get over on everyone else. What's great, I love about that story in John 21 is they caught all of those fish. They brought it in, their boat was about to sink, but Jesus didn't meet them on the shore and go, hey, bring some of your fish. Jesus had fish waiting for them. Jesus had could, cooked breakfast. He says, that's good. We'll use that. We'll use those fish somewhere else. But I'm provided for you. See, Jesus wants to give you redemption. He wants, to, he wants you to live wide open in a world with his power, with his goodness. If you're in a place where you feel like you don't need that, like you've just got one more shot left, I, I want, first of all, I want, you know, you're welcome here forever and whatever, but I, I have to tell you that sooner or later, you're going to run to the end of that. You're going to run to the end of your power and your strength and your opportunity. You're going to get older and someone younger is going to come. You're going to find someone better connected than you with more opportunity than you. And then what is your hope in? Because I believe Jesus stands on the banks of the river and says, hey, how's that working? How's that going for you? And we can say, I've struggled my whole life and I fought my whole life and I've worked my whole life and now there's this diagnosis that I can't get around. Now there's this relationship that I can't fix. Now there's this poverty that I can't deal with. And Jesus says, you've been building your life with the wrong materials. And then he forgives us. Christmas is about forgiveness. Christmas is about a God who comes to set things right, not with tanks and armies, but with forgiveness and with grace. But if he forgives us, we have to forgive others. That's the way. That's the thing. You want hope? You want hope that this world that you can be forgiven? Begin to forgive others, even for the really terrible, heinous things. Forgive them. Set them free. Because then what you've done is you just created a world where the hope of forgiveness isn't far away because you've seen people who forgive and then it comes to you. The thing between Luke 22 and John 21 is the cross and the empty grave. The cross is what Peter's failure brought to him. The empty grave is what Jesus does with Peter's failure. He overcomes it. He gets up again. See, the hope of Christmas is that your failure isn't final. The hope of Christmas is that Jesus comes back and he gets you and me. In Jesus, we have hope. In Jesus, we come to believe that even this, whatever this is, can be redeemed. 
In Jesus, we find that our hope isn't misplaced. The Christmas way is that a baby came to show us strength. Will you hope in that? Because if you hope in strength and you hope in might, you're going to find yourself spun out. Because what happens if I use my might to get over on you, what I've just done is created an enemy, someone who is looking for an opportunity to use their might to get over on me. And then when you get over on me, now I'm looking for my might, and we have this always escalating power struggle. Let's opt out of that. What if somebody hurts me and I choose to forgive them instead because I've been forgiven? Jesus, I ask that you would help us to live in light of that hope this Christmas. I hope that we would be your people forgiven. And Lord, sometimes the hurts and wounds in this world are because, we, um, because we're mean and because we're afraid and sometimes we hurt people intentionally. Sometimes we're just weak. Our intentions are good and we're just weak. But whatever the case, we find ourselves in situations where we know we don't have the answers to this. In those moments, I pray that you would lead us to you. And Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't just hope in you when things are terrible. I hope that we would hope in you minute by minute, day by day. I pray that our hope at work would be that you are with us. I pray that our hope at home, if our marriage is falling apart and we just say, no, I'm going to love my spouse regardless of what they do, I pray that our hope in that would be that you're gonna make something happen. You're gonna work in places that we can't. As we change the way we relate to money, I pray that our hope would be that you're a provider who's able to give. In all things, Jesus, I ask that you would make us like you. Let us not be disappointed as we hope in you. We thank you, Jesus. Our eyes are on you this Christmas season, and we're grateful. We ask all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. River City Church is all about experiencing and expressing God's love in our lives and community, and we hope that you've been able to experience that today. As grateful as I am that you've spent this time listening in this morning, this podcast is no substitute for full participation in a local church. I love it when River City people listen to other pastors, but it is those who show up week after week, faithfully giving their support and time and resources that make all of this possible. If we can help you get connected to a local church, pray for you, or support you in any way, click the link in the description and let us know. If you'd like to financially support the ministry of River City, click the Give link on our website in the description. Don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to share this with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. May the Lord bless and keep you in all grace and peace.